Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So we resume with Peruk Hey Pasuk Lamad Bet, and we're towards the end of quite a lot of comments of Rashi. So the Torah says that by Noach ben Yafet, Noach was five hundred years old, and he begat. Shem and Cham and Yafet. And Rashi made the point that he is exceptional in these, this period of history in that he did not have children till he was 500 years old. And we are told the ages of the various other generations that preceded him, all the way from Adam to Nach, and they had children at a much younger age, um, within their first century, which for them was pretty young. So Rashi asked why... Um, Noach waited 500 years. And he said, and we talked about this last week, that Hashem deliberately brought that about um, because if he'd had children earlier than this who were Rashayim, they'd be wiped out in the flood and that would be Ra Tzadik Zer, that would be sad for the Tzadik Noach. And if he had children who were Tzadikim, says Rashi, he would have to build many Tevot, many arks to save them. And we made the point last week that this doesn't just mean he'd have to save more children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but we, uh, we saw an opinion that said, and we learned this from when Abraham prayed for Saddam to be saved, but if there were 10 people, 10 Sadiqim, that would save one city, 50 Sadiqim would save five cities, and therefore we can conclude, and, and, and Rashi made the point in, in Abraham, uh, there in Pashat Vaera that he was, sorry, Vaera, that he was deliberately modeling his numbers on the period at the time of the flood when eight people, Noah, his three children, and all their wives, did not save the uh, world. So, therefore, had there been more Sadiqim amongst the children of Noah born by this stage, then they would have saved not just themselves but other parts of the world. Not the whole world, there would still have been a flood, but they would have saved other communities. And perhaps that's what Rashi means when he says that had there been other children and other Sadiqim, he would, Noach would have had to make more uh, tevot. And we're taking it from that point where it says, Kaves et meyano, velo holid ad shana. So Hashem um, closed off Noach's fountain. In other words, he he denied him the ability to procreate until he was 500 years. And that also relates to what we saw earlier, that um, Adam did not have children for 130 years um, and after, well, after the first two children were born. And only 130 years later did he have another child called Shet. And no, uh, um, Adam, sorry, Rashi said there that Adam separated from his wife for 130 years. How do we know that he separated from his wife? Maybe he was with his wife. They just never didn't have children. So the answer is that we can be sure that Hashem would not bring that about for a tzaddik like Adam Arisham. And therefore, when he does bring it about for a tzaddik like Noach, Rashi has to say, Kovesh et mayono. Hashem deliberately acted to take away Abraham, sorry, Noach's fertility because we assume in the normal course of events, he would have had children like everybody else at a much earlier age. Okay, then Rashi says, So he waited not just 
for a hundred years before the Mabul, but there's a significance to that. So Yefet is the oldest child. Uh, there's a discussion on that later on in Parshat Nach, so we'll leave it till then. But there is such a discussion, I think, in Perik Tet. But we, uh, Rashi says that Yafet is the oldest child. So Yafet was born a hundred years before the flood. So he only reached the age of a hundred just at the time of the flood. What's significant about the age of the hundred? He says, Because only when he gets to the age of a hundred is he deserving of punishments. Which means until that time, he might be a rotten person, but he won't get killed. So the point that Rashi made earlier, that Hashem delays Noah having children, because if he had children who were Rashayim, they would be wiped out in the flood, and Noah would be upset. So what's the point of waiting? After all, even before the flood, he does have three children. Maybe they will be Rashayim. Maybe they will be wiped out. And therefore, Noah will be upset. Ah, that's not going to happen. Because they don't quite reach the age by which they are liable for punishments. And that age turns out to be 100. Wow. So anyone less than 100 is scot-free. Well, not quite, as we will see. Because it say, he brings a pasuk. Rashi says, Dichtiv, as it's written in Yeshaya, Samachai, Pasuk Kaf, Ki Hanaar ben Mea Shana Yamot, when the lad is a hundred years old, he will die, which means, Reui Onesh, he will be fitting for punishment. La'atit, in the future. Now, in the future means in the period of the Mashiach, because the Nevuah of Yeshaya in this place, in Perak Samachai, as, as is a lot of Yeshaya, is about the time of Mashiach. So it's not the case that today we will be um, free from punishments until the age of 100. Today it's not like that. But it will be like that in the future, in the time of Mashiach. V'chein lifnei matan Torah. And that concludes Rashi's comment at this point. Also before matan Torah. So there's two periods in history when the time for punishments will be 100 and beyond, in the future of the time of Mashiach, and in prehistory before Matan Torah. So if Yefet, who's the oldest, is only born 100 years before the flood, and his brothers Ham and Shem are born later, so they're less than 100 years before the flood, then none of them have quite reached the age by which they would be worthy of death for wickedness, and therefore they will not be wiped out in the flood, and Noah will not be unhappy. So Rashi explains why Davka, he has to wait till he's 500, just 100 years before the flood, before he can have children. Is there any problem with what we've just said? Well, yes. Because if we look at the beginning of Parshat Chaye Sara, which is a very well-known comment of Rashi, in Perak Kaf Gimel Pasuk Aleph, and it's in Bereshit, so you should all be able to turn to it. And we read there, Sarah was a hundred years and twenty years and seven years. And the famous comment of Rashi is, why does it say Shana after a hundred years and twenty years and seven years? It says Rashi there, Each of these periods of years is expounded on its own. But Mea Kabat Esrim Ma bat esrim lo tit lo tit 
when Sarah was a hundred, she was like twenty. And then later on he says she, when she was twenty, she was like seven for beauty. But she was a hundred, she was like twenty for sin. So what is the case with a twenty-year-old? She has not sinned. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean she's never sinned. It means she's never been punished because she is not a, a liable for punishment. And Rashi doesn't say it. It means until the age of 20. So 20 is the oldest you can be without being liable for punishment. So you're, you're innocent at the age of 20. And the Chiddush, the wonderful thing about Sarah, was she was equally innocent at the age of 100. What's the problem? We've just been told by Rashi that before Matan Torah, the age for punishment was 100. But by Sarah, he says the age for punishment is 20. Any solutions? Well, fortunately, I've come with some solutions. <laughs> so, I'll give you three. Yes, but he, but he did say, I think it's a stronger case because to say, because it's saying she was 100, though. But she's like 20, and 20 is, is the time. He says 20 is not yet, I'm out of the word yet, but on Shin. But what he means is 20 is the time when you get, you get on Shin. Yeah, right. Yes, okay. So answer one, and I just raised this because it's sort of in the, in, in the interest of intellectual honesty, there is an alternative girsa, uh, and you can see this in the Midrash as well, that swaps around the 20 and the 100 and the 7, that says when she was... A hundred, she was as beautiful as when she was 20. And when she was 20, she was as innocent as when she was seven. And there is a Midrash that says that. And maybe our text of Rashi is corrupted. Um, by the way, that, that sort of fits in a little bit more with our, our way of looking at things. We would normally say a seven-year-old is the epitome of innocence and a 20-year-old is the epitome of beauty. So the Rashi that we have turns that around and says, no, no, a... The epitome of beauty is a seven-year-old, which is different from the way the world looks at that today, and maybe we can learn from that. And the epitome of innocence is not a seven-year-old who's never sinned, but a 20-year-old who's never been punished. But anyway, so I just mentioned to you that maybe our Giyasa of Rashi is not the original. But I put that on one side because I don't think it's well-founded, and also it's, it's not a very exciting line to take just to say, well, rewrite the text. The second possibility, which the Chizkuni brings, uh, based on a Gemara, is that um, the shift from uh, liable to punishment at 100 to liable to punishment at 20 started from the time of Avraham Avinu. There is a Midrash that says that the 6,000 years of the world can be divided into 2,000 years of tohu vavohu, wasteless, and then to the next 2,000 years got better when Avraham Avinu came. And Avraham Avinu came at roughly the year 2000, actually a little bit before, but close enough. So as when Avraham Avinu came, there was already a change in the way the world worked. There was a greater appreciation of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and supposedly Shava Onesh, reward and punishment. And that's when the punishment changed from, 20, from 100 to 20. Now that works nicely because it explains Sarah, who was uh, punished from the age of 20, because she was obviously after the era of Avraham Avinu had already begun. I don't, I have a problem with that. I, I can't really argue with the Chizkuni, but I do have a problem because Rashi says explicitly, V'chein lifnei matan Torah. He doesn't say, V'chein lifnei Avram Avinu. He says, V'chein lifnei matan Torah. 
And there's no reason to question the preciseness of Rashi's words here. So Rashi says the change came at Matan Torah. And Sarah obviously was before Matan Torah. And then he brings it from a Midrash, though. Yeah, he brings it from a Midrash. <coughs> yes, exactly. So it's a good reason not to, contra- not to contradict it. I mean, you could take a different approach and like, find a support in the Gemara for a different answer, but you can't really say that in Rashi. However, if you look at Rashi's comment on the Posik in Yeshaya, which I just happen to have here, Rashi says in the words, Ben Meashana Yamot, at the age of 100, he will die. Says Rashi there in Yeshaya, Yehei Ben Onshin Lehitachayev Mita. That's the age of 100 when you will be liable for punishments which will have the death penalty. But Avera Shiyeshba Mita with a sin which has the punishment of death. As explains in Bereshit Rabbah. And now it all works beautifully because what's the whole point of waiting for Noah to be 500? So Yafet and his brothers will be 100 years or less to make sure they don't, what? Die as a punishment before the mubble or in the mubble. To make sure they don't die. So it's not that they don't receive any punishment, but Rashi said quite clearly that the problem that Hashem wants to avoid is Noach being sad at the death of his children should they deserve it. So when he says 100 is the age of punishment, if you look there in Yeshaya, he clearly says it's the age of capital punishment. And that works nicely to say that there's still the age of 20 for punishments in general, just not punishments by death. And when Sarah is lauded, for being as innocent at 100 as she was at 20, that's referring to the time of being liable for punishments of, an, of, a, of a lower nature. That clicks in at 20, even from the time before Matan Torah. But it's the punishment of death only applies from the age of 100. That was, as Rashi says, before Matan Torah. Are these numbers arbitrary? I don't think so. Where do we see the meaning behind them? Uh, where do we see the meaning behind that? Um, I... I, I don't know. Cool. Okay, um, for further investigation. Yeah, after Matan Tawa, we also have Mita after 20 years now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, a, uh, a bet din, if there's a functioning bet din, could punish people by death uh, from the age of 20. And also other Khatahim? Um, Actually, is Rosh from 20 still? Actually, like a base din? Is that uh, such a uh, For a bet din, yes. Mina Shemayim, it can be a much earlier age. Okay, any questions? Okay, let's carry on. So the next thing Rashi says is, et shem, et cham, ve'et yafet. Any problems on that order, based on what we've just said? Yafet was firstborn. Okay, anyone notice in last week's Pasha, people listed in a different order to how they've been listed before? But not Zalofchat. So Rashi says, sometimes they're listed by age, and sometimes they're listed by chokhmah, which shows they were all equally good. Anyway, does that apply to here? No, 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 but it's just, you might have noticed. Et shem et chamvet yafet, vahalo yafet, hu hagadol. Yafet was the oldest, as we will prove later. Perak yud pasuk kaf alaf. So why is shem listed first? Eila betchila atadoresh et shem. But first of all, you expound shem. Chehud sadik. Shem was a tzaddik. How do we know that Cham was not a tzaddik? Because of the odd incident when Noah got drunk and Cham did something. Well, when we get there, we'll see what Rashi says he did. It's not very nice. 
um, but he certainly wasn't a tzaddik. Yafet, Rashi describes as sort of in the middle. Shem is the tzaddik. Venolad kashahu mahul. And he was born circumcised. The Midrash says that certain people had the tremendous schut of being born circumcised. It seems like a very, very good thing. Uh, if circumcision renders uh, a baby boy to a higher state of perfection, if they're born in this state of perfection already, that must be a good thing. And Rashi doesn't bring a source for it, but it's in the Midrash, but there's no, I, I don't have a textual source for it. But Rashi just mentions it here as part of the explanation of why Shem is mentioned first. So number one, he is a tzaddik. Number two, related to that, he is born mahul, circumcised. And number three, v'sha Avraham yatsa mimenu. Avraham came from him. So obviously, in our history, in the Torah's history, he's the most significant of the three brothers because he is the ancestor of Avraham Avinu and hence of us. But Bereshit Rabbah, that comes from Bereshit Rabbah. So Rashi's problem is, if you're going to list people in order, by default you list them in age order, with the oldest first. And if you don't list them with the oldest first, you have to explain why. By the way, why would Yefet be demoted to number three? So I saw the suggestion that if you're mentioning Shem, then you mention the next one born after him, who is Cham, and then you finish off the list with whoever's missing, which is Yefet. It's a little bit tricky, um, but I suppose another way of putting it is once you've deviated from listing them in age order, then age order doesn't really matter at all. So you go to Shem and then uh, you might go to Cham next. Okay, we're up to Perik Vav. So we're very close to the end of Bereshit, but we still got a little bit of uh, quite a bit of work to do. Pasuk Perak Vav Pasuk Aleph. So this actually, it's worth pointing out, this Perak crosses over to Parshat Noach. Now the Prakim are not in, of, of significance as far as we're concerned. Where did the Prakim come from? The Christians. So they put them in in order to sort of find a handy way to refer to different verses, and we adopted them, but they are not of Jewish origin. And there are times when they contradict the links, the breaks that we have in our, uh, our parashiyot. Um, however, it's just worth noting that um, this parak only carries on for eight verses in Bereshit, and then from uh, Pasuk Tet, number nine, it's, we're ready into Noah. Why do I mention that? Because we're very, very close to the flood. And these eight verses set the scene for the flood. And everything that happens in the next eight verses must be seen in that context. So, Perak Vav Pasak Aleph. Vayehi, it was Ki Hachel Ha'adam Larov Al Peneha Adama Ubanot Yulaldu Lahem. And it was when mankind began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Why does it mention daughters? What's the big deal about daughters being born? That will become very clear in the next verse. Rashi doesn't have anything to say on this verse, so we'll move on. The Yeru, the et benot ha'adam, and the sons of Elohim, Elohim, saw the daughters of man, kitovat heina, that they were good, or good-looking, vayikhulahem nashim, and they took for them wives, mikal asher bacharu from all that they chose. Now, without Rashi, we, uh, we probably have the sense that something's not quite right here, but we're not quite sure what is wrong. The next verse says Hashem decides to give man one last chance, 
and sort of it gets worse from there on. So in that context, something, something bad is happening in Pasuk Bet, but we need to understand what it is. But I think the, the starting question is, what is meant by B'nai Ha'elokim, the sons of God? Do we normally believe in the Son of God? Isn't it the other guys that believe in the Son of God? So what is meant by the sons of God? Any ideas? Elohim like judges. Okay, well spotted. Says Rashi, B'nai ha'Elohim, B'nai ha'Sarim v'ha'Shoftim, the children of mes- of officers and um, judges. Okay, so as has been said, the word Elohim, and I pronounce it as Elohim deliberately, doesn't always mean God. In Pasha Mishpatim, for instance, where we talk about various things that require judges, over and over again it says you go to the Elohim. Because Elohim, as Rashi here says, means rulers or, or ministers, as in like cabinet ministers, and judges. The basic origin of the word Elohim and Elohim is Kel, stroke L, Kel if it's holy, L if it's not, which means mighty. Elim means powerful. So God, obviously, is powerful, and judges are powerful. So the word Elohim does not always mean God. And Rashi says here, it means the sons of judges. Then he says, There's another explanation. B'nei ha'Elohim, heim hasarim ha'holchim b'shlichuto shel makom. These are the ministers who go as emissaries of Hashem. And they were mixed up with them. Who was mixed up with whom? These messengers of God were mixed up with people. And Pasuk Dalad hints at the same thing as well. Now, what is going on here? This is referring to a Midrash, which I, I have tremendous problems with. But it's not for me to have problems with the Midrash. It's for me to understand the Midrash. Um, which says, there were angels who fell to earth and fell spiritually as well as physically. And the story goes, and this is in the Gemara, it's in the Midrash, they said to Hashem, they said, we're better than man, we won't make the sort of sinful mistakes that he makes. To which God said, aha, man has a Yetzirah, you don't, so it's not fair. To which they said, give us a Yetzirah and we'll still be better than man. Hashem said, and I paraphrase a bit. Are you sure? <laughs> they say, yeah, we're up for it. That's not in the original text. But yeah. <laughs> so he gave them a Yetzirah. He sent them down to earth. And guess what? They sinned. And this is their sin. Now, the whole idea of angels of a Yetzirah, it's, it's very, very hard. Because everything we know about angels is that they don't have a Yetzirah. And what does it mean that they came down to earth? I, I find it very, very problematic. But Rashi brings this as a second explanation. So why does he need two explanations? And here it really is classically two explanations. In Perak Dalet, I'm sorry, Pasuk Dalet, I, I think we'll get there tonight. Um, he also brings two, but it's not really clearly two separate explanations. Here it is. How do I know it is? Because the second one is introduced by Devar Acher. Devar Acher means another explanation. So when Rashi brings two explanations, it behoves us to try and understand why he needs two. And there are certain places to look at which are very good at that. The muscular David is one. And the muscular David says like this, there is a problem with the first explanation, there's a problem with the second explanation. And the problem with the first explanation is, if B'nai Elohim means judges, so the people who were 
taking these women and doing something improper with these women are B'nai Ha'elohim, the sons of judges and ministers. Says the Masculine David, the problem with that is, why the sons? If, it, if the ministers and the judges are corrupt, then you'd expect the judges themselves to be acting in this way. How can we assume that the judges are like free from this Yetzirah, but they pass it on to the children? People who happen to be the children of judges succumb to this Yetzirah or act in this way, but their, their parents don't. That doesn't really make sense. And what's wrong with the second explanation? The second explanation is these angels who are walking on the earth with the Yetzirah, they're still angels. And what don't angels do? Well, uh, that's true, actually. That's a good point. The angels don't walk. They have one leg, um, which is why we stand with our feet together during Kedusha, to emulate angels. Just since I mentioned it, what does that mean? That means, what's the point of walking? Walking means you can go forward and you can move to a higher level of spirituality. Angels can't because they don't have a Yetzirah. So they can't grow. It's interesting. Animal, uh, the Maharal talks about this. So I'm getting onto my Maharal hobby horse. That, <laughs> that in all creation, there is man... And the rest. Animals can't grow because they don't have a Yetzirah. They just act on instinct. And distinct from that, but in the same category, Malachim can't grow because they also don't have a Yetzirah. Mankind is the only species in the whole of creation that has the power to grow spiritually. So angels don't walk, but these ones did. Okay. But what else don't angels do? They don't do human things. They don't eat. They don't drink. That's why the angels who came to Abraham didn't really eat. They just pretended to. And they don't get married and have relations with women. So it doesn't make sense to say they were angels who took these women. That's what the muscular David said. That's how he explains why Rashi brings two explanations. Rabbi? Yes. This is B'nai Elohim. Does it, like, we use B'nai, when we say, I don't know, B'nai Torah or whatever we say in B'nai, we say, like, not the sons of, but we say, like, the people. Like... I can't, why can't we say B'nai Elohim is in itself the people of like being the rulers or being the ministers? Like, so why? So we say B'nai Torah to mean people of Torah. I'm just repeating it yeah. so everyone can hear. Um, we say B'nai Torah to mean people of Torah. So B'nai Elohim can mean people who are judges. The reason I think that is unlikely is because we know that we can say Elohim meaning judges, because we see that elsewhere. Like in, no, no, no. in, in Mishpatim, it doesn't say, go to the B'nai Elohim, the people of the judges. It says, go to the Elohim. Ah. Okay? So at least the muscular David says that Rashi will be saying that it means literally sons of judges. Okay, then Rashi says, Kol Elohim Shabamikra Loshan Marut. Every time you see Elohim or Elohim in, the, in Scripture, it's an expression of lordship or ownership. That's Marut. And that applies to HaKadosh Baruch and that applies to judges, and it applies to fallen angels. So that's why Rashi puts this comment not after the first explanation, but after the second as well, because it applies to both of them. It applies to Elohim, meaning judges, uh, stroke ministers, and it applies to Elohim, meaning fallen angels. And also, I'm adding, it applies to Elohim, meaning HaKadosh Baruch And it's all an expression of Marut. V'zeh Yochia. And he says, this will prove it. And he brings two psukim, where the word Elohim is used, and it obviously doesn't mean God, and we'll see what it does mean. So the first one is, This is when Hashem appoints Moshe to, uh, at the snare, the burning bush, to uh, basically be the most important person ever in history, and to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. 
And Moshe says, I've got a problem that I'm not very eloquent and I possibly have a speech impediment. And Hashem says, Perak Dalad Pasuk Tet Zayim, regarding Aharon, Vidiber Hulacha El Ha'am, he will speak on your behalf to the people, Vahaya Hu Lacha Laper, and he will be to you as a mouth. And then the next four words is what's quoted by Rashi, and you will be to him as an Elohim. And then Rashi brings another Pasuk, and he says, the next one is, Elohim, Pasuk Aleph of Shemot. And there the full Pasuk is, Behold, I have appointed you as an Elohim to Pharaoh. And Aaron will be your Navi, which Rashi says doesn't mean your prophet, although it sort of sounds like you'll be God and he'll be the prophet. But no, it doesn't mean that. Aaron will be your spokesperson. And he proves that Navi doesn't necessarily mean prophet, it just means spokesperson. Now, um, I didn't see anyone... Sorry, let's go back and say before I say what I'm about to say. In both these cases, the word Elohim is used. Moshe is going to be the Elohim to Aaron. And Moshe is going to be the Elohim to Pharaoh. And clearly it doesn't mean God. Moshe is not going to be God. Neither to Pharaoh or to Aaron. Clearly it means some sort of marut, as Rashi says, some sort of lordship, leadership, rulership. Now, I didn't see anybody, and in, uh, in where I looked, and maybe there are other places where I didn't look, who talk about why Rashi brings two psukim. And um, through trying to encourage you, I've encouraged myself to always started to be uh, cognizant of these things. And if Rashi brings two pesukim rather than one, there's a reason why he brings two pesukim rather than one. And it seems to me that there are two types of marut, two types of lordship in these two pesukim. So, and Rashi, if you look at Rashi on the text, you can see what I mean. Because when he says, you will be Elohim to Aharon, Rashi says, l'rav ulasar, as a rav, rabbi, teacher, and a Tsar as in a minister. When he says, I'm making you an Elohim to Pharaoh, he says, Shofet Vroder. This is Rashi on Perigzion, Pasuk Aleph of Shemot. Shofet Vroder, a judge and a ruler. Lirudoto Bamakot Vyasurin, to rule over him with hittings and afflictions. So it seems to me that Rashi is pointing out that Elohim means Marut. But there's quite a spectrum of marut as in lordship. It's Elohim means a teacher, as, Hash, as Moshe was to Aaron. And it means a ruler, a harsh ruler, as Moshe was to Paro. There's a progression between the two, but there's a difference. And it seems to me that Rashi is saying, he's backing up what he said in his words here, that call Elohim Shabamikra. Every instance of Elohim in scripture is Loshan Marut. But that includes a range of possibilities from teacher to ruler, as we see in Moshe's relationship with Aaron and Moshe's relationship with Paro. Turn over. So, Rashi, sorry, the Pasuk says that these uh, B'nai Elohim saw the daughters, Kitovat Hena, that they were good. Says Rashi, Kitovat Hena, Amar Rabbi Yudan, Tovat Ketiv. It's written Tovat without a, well, it could probably even have two Vavs, but certainly without the second Vav. 
you would normally expect the feminine plural to have a cholam, a vav, spelt out there. And there is no second vav. Uh, you just got a dot on the vet instead. It's also the case there's no vav between the tet and the vav, but I think it's the second vav that's missing. Now, which reads, Kushahayu, says Rashi, Kushahayu metivin ota, when they were making her good, when they were making her good, mokoshetet, um, uh, decorated, made up, I think we would say today, likanes lechupa, to enter into the chupa, hayagadol nichnas uboala techila. The big one, the powerful one, would enter and have relations with her first. So what this means, kitovat heina, says Rashi, means they would um, take brides from the very chuppah and take them for themselves. Um, you've probably all heard of uh, what used to be called droit de seigneur, that the right of the nobleman to do this to brides in his area of control. Um, I don't know if it was mythological or true, or some cases one, some cases the other, but there, there is a tradition, uh, obviously a very, very evil tradition, amongst people who exercise their power in this way. And says Rashi, this is what was going on. Now, what's the source? What, what's the logic of Rashi's analysis? The Pasuk doesn't say anything about chuppah. The Pasuk doesn't say that these men would take these brides at the moment of their chuppah. So what's suggested is this. He says, tovat, which is not the full tovat, because there's a letter missing. So it's when they were being made to be beautiful. When the women were in the process of being made to be beautiful. When they were having their hair and makeup done. And when do they have their hair and makeup done? For the chuppah. So that possibly is, is Rashi's process of deduction that kitovat heina means dafka at the time when they were at the chuppah. At the time when they weren't fully naturally tova, but they were being made tova. So it was not quite complete, hence the chaser, hence the lacking in the spelling. But Rashi's not finished, because Rashi believes this is not one incident, but a progression. If you look at the Chumash, you might think it's just uh, the Bnei saw the Benot, saw the daughters, but Rashi says there's too many bits going on in that Pasuk to refer to one single thing. He thinks there's more, because then he says, um, on the words from all that they chose, these Bnei whatever they were, they took for themselves nashim, women or wives, from all that they chose. So says Rashi, af bu'ulat bal, even people who were married, af hazachar, even males, v'habahema, and animals. Okay, why does Rashi say this? So again, Rashi doesn't think there's one thing being referred to. He actually thinks there's three or four, depending on how you count it. So he thinks... Um, Vayikhu introduces a new thing because there's already been like a complete clause up to that point. So something happened there. That's a complete clause with its own verb. Then is something else. And what's the difference? Well, it fits nicely with what Rashi said because Rashi said the first part, refers to brides at the chuppah which means they were betrothed but not yet married. And then Rashi says, 
even Bolat Baal, even people who were married, which is, I mean, it's pretty bad to do any of this, but it's sort of worse. And that's learnt out, perhaps, by the word Nashim. And as I said, Nashim means women, but it also means wives. So Vayikhulahem Nashim means they took wives, not their own wives, they took other people's wives. And then there's another stage, and that is perhaps, I mean, everything I say is perhaps based on, on what some of the Mephoshim of Rashi say, is Mikol Asher Bacharu, from the word Kol. Now, Kol is an expansion. Kol means all. So all that they chose must mean even more than we've just said. So how can we break down the boundaries of normality of society even further? Stage one, we take brides from the chuppah. Stage two, we take people who are already married. And stage three, we go out of the realm of normal, acceptable behavior into homosexuality and relations with animals. That's, that's how far it goes. Okay. Then it says in Pasuk Gimel, Vayomer Hashem, lo yadon rochi ba'adam la'olam. And it's going to be hard to translate this because this is one of the very hard pasukim in the Chumash. Um, and without Rashi or other Mephoshim, given their explanation, we'd be pretty clueless what's going on here. We might have some ideas which Rashi will not accept, as we will see. So Hashem said, lo yadun ruchi, my spirit will not yadun, whatever that means, but adam, something to do with adam, lo olam, forever, although that's not spelled fully, Bushagam, now Rashi's got a lot to say about that word. It's just a little sort of conjunction, but Rashi's quite excited about it. Bushagam hu basar, something to do with Adam, mankind, being flesh. Vahiyu yamav me'ave esrim shana. And as a result of what Hashem says, his days will be 120 years. So it's something like Hashem, well, Yodun might think of judging. Rashi doesn't adopt that. But it's something about, I'm not going to judge Adam. I'll just say, uh, I think many people, including me, would have thought it's something to do with, well, because he is flesh, i.e. he's physical, he's animalistic, um, he's always going to be bad, or I'm going to give him some sort of uh, allowance or something like that. And his days will be 120. Ah, that sounds good, because we always wish people that they should live. Esrim. So it sounds like Hashem is listing that mankind's length of days shall be 120. That's what some people, i.e. me, might have guessed is going on in this Pasuk. It happens not to be what Rashi says. Not at all, really. So, let's see what Rashi says. And I think, we're always trying to ask, what is Rashi's problem? I think you can answer it quite simply. The Rashi's problem is, how do I understand this Pasuk? Because it's very, very obscure. And how do I make it all fit together? And how do I make it fit with what's coming later on? I think that's Rashi's task. So he starts with, Lo yadon ruchiba adam. My spirit will not, well, Rashi says, Lo yitra'am v'yariv ruchi alai bishvil ha'adam. So the subject is ruchi. My spirit will not be troubled and in strife on me bishvil ha'adam because of man, or for the sake of man. Now, by the way, when he says Bishvil HaAdam, which letter is he translating? Anyone with me? The Bet. The Bet, very good, of Ba'adam. What does it mean, my spirit in man? 
So this is the easiest bit, probably the whole pasuk. Ba'adam means bishvil ha'adam, because of man. So yadun is not related to judging, says Rashi. It's related to yariv. Uh, uh, medan is uh, strife, as well as other things. I don't think, think yitra'am, meaning troubled or storm-tossed, as one translation has it, is a direct translation of yudun. But it's what Rashi says is part of what Hashem is talking about. I think Art Squad, what does Art Squad say? Storming agitated. Storming agitated. It's good. Okay. So, I, in other words, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to keep my spirit being troubled because of man. Le olam, which means forever. But Rashi doesn't say it means forever. He says it means le orech yamim, for a long time. Now, why does Rashi say la olam does not mean what it usually means, which means forever? Here it means for a long time. And I think the answer is, um, what is Hashem saying? Hashem is saying, you might have thought that I would be troubled by Adam la olam, but I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to put a time limit on it. That's the 120 years which is coming, by the way. Um, so you might have thought it would be la olam, but it's not going to be la olam. It's going to be less than that. Says Rashi, would we ever have thought that Hashem would leave man unpunished forever? No, that doesn't make sense. There's always punishment. We live in a world of schava onesh. So the only question in Hashem's mind would be, do I punish him earlier or later? It is impossible to imagine that there was even a havamina, even a possibility that he would never punish him. So it doesn't mean that I'm not going to have my spirit troubled forever. But rather, I'm not going to have my spirit troubled for a long time. Okay, up till now, Rashi's basically translated the words. Now he's giving an explanation of what's going on. And he says, My spirit is troubled within me. Obviously, this is anthropomorphic. But the Torah and Rashi, for that matter, speak in the language that we can understand. So we talk about Hashem troubling inside Hashem. And what's the trouble? What's the debate? Whether to destroy or whether to be merciful. So that's the debate that's going on inside Hashem, as it were. And regarding that debate, this debate will not be in my spirit forever. And then Rashi makes the same point again, because this is, Rashi's repeating himself, as I said, because he's no longer translating word for word. That's what he did in the previous couple of lines. He's now telling you in his own words what's going on. And he says, this madon, this trouble, will not continue in my spirit, la'olam, kulama, that is to say, la'orech yamim, for the length, for a long time. So I'm not going to have this debate within me whether to destroy or whether to be merciful, which means for a long time. But rather, I'm going to put a limit on how long this debate is going to go on for. So that's the first part. The next part is, Bushagam hu basar. Hu basar, rather. Now, what does Bushagam mean? So Rashi, this isn't actually the longest grammatical Rashi by any means, but it's a bit of grammar, says Bushagam uh, B, sorry, B-sha-gam, with a um, Shiva and a Patach and a Patach. He says, Kamo is like B-she-gam, with a Segol under the Shin. Okay, 
This is his big point. Um, what's the difference between b sha gam and b sh sh gam? If I've said it clearly enough. So if it's a patach under the shin, then you might think the shin is part of the root. And what verb is it? Well, it's a little bit hard to work out what verb it is, but it might be shaga with a hey, which is then replaced by a mem, because hey sometimes are, and shaga, shin, gimel, hey, means to make a mistake, like shogeg. So you might have thought it's something to do with he makes a mistake, or, or you might just not been able to read it, basically. But Rashi says it's like b-sh-gam, with the shin meaning that, or because, or even though, it's actually a contraction of asher, which means which or that. But shin with a segol often means, in classical Hebrew and even in modern Hebrew, it's a, it's a very short way of saying that or because of. So that's what it means here. So here it means kulama, that is to say, says Rashi, bishvil gam zot bo shahu basar. Because even this one in it, he is flesh. Now, we'll see what that means in the very next line. In fact, let's go straight there. What's the significance of he is flesh? So, b'shagam means now b'shagam. It just means that even. That's what b'shagam means. And if you didn't do the switch with the vowels that Rashi has said you can, you wouldn't have worked that out. That's why it's important that Rashi says that patach is actually can be read as a segol, and it means that even. And if it had been a patach, you wouldn't have known it meant that even. Now, that even what? That even he is flesh. What's the big deal about he being flesh? Says Rashi, the next few words. And this is entirely added by Rashi, based on the Midrash. Va'af And even so, he is not humbled before me. So even though he's flesh, which is like pretty low in the pecking order of spirituality... And he should have that sense of humility before me, God. He doesn't. Why do I see that? Because what's going on in the world is a total mess. You've got all these people stealing women in, in, in totally improper ways. It's not good. He is not humbling himself before me. Continues Rashi. Uma im eish kasher. And what would it be if he were fire? or something hard, something stronger, and our text of Rashi, most people's text, doesn't uh, have anything more there. The, the, the what would it be is not quite spelt out. Um, one, there is a text of Rashi that says, Ma avidlo, I'm sorry, Ma yaaselo, what would he do? And I think you can read this in two ways. That, number one, uh, he's so lowly, he's even flesh, and yet he still is rebellious, um, how much more so, I think probably it's the only way actually, how much more so would he be rebellious if he was something stronger? And that's why I'm going to have to do something about it. Um, I'll just end with this. What does it not mean? It does not mean anything like I suggested earlier, and I deliberately set this up to see what Rashi's opposing. Something about, well, we should be nice to him because he's flesh, or he's always going to be bad because he's flesh. And I think the reason that Rashi rules that out is because if that's what it had meant that there's a problem, an inherent problem with him being flesh, then we would expect Hashem, when he comes up with version 2.0, to not have people made of flesh. But we know that's not what happens. Version 2.0, which is after the Mabul, is full of people again, who are equally fleshy. 
So the fact that he is flesh is not some problem to be resolved by a non-flesh solution. So that's why it's not the problem. It's, 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 it's actually an example of how chutzpahdik man is and therefore how much he deserves to be destroyed. That even though he is flesh, look, this is how he behaves. Um, I mean, let's just finish off. We've got a minute to go. So finish off at least this part. So the answer is, having Rashi explained that the whole Pasuk is Hashem saying, I'm not going to have this internal debate forever, which doesn't mean forever. It means for a long time. But rather, the Hayu Yamav Mea Ve'esrim Shana. His days will be 120 years, which means, says Rashi, uh, I've jumped a bit, I've jumped past the grammar. Ad mea ve'esrim shana arich alahem apai. For 120 years, I will be slow to anger, and then I will judge him, and then, says Rashi, that's when the flood is going to come. So we'll stop there. I missed out the uh, couple of pasukim which he brings to prove that a shin with a patach can be read as a shin with a segol. So Mietz Hashem will do those next week. And there's a little bit more because you might notice where does this 120 years come from? After all, we've just said in Pasuk Lamad Bet on the previous um, Perak, how long was it before the flood that Noah had children? A hundred years. So why is Hashem now giving them 120 years? Something's gone wrong with the numbers. Fortunately, we can solve that quite easily. Amir Hashem will meet again next week. I hope we have a Sommail, a meaningful fast, or maybe we've got a week to go, maybe it won't be a fast at all, and in which case we'll book the time now. We'll meet at 8.30 on Sunday night in Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh. Amen. Amen.